0: Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger.
1: Will, last season we spent a lot of time talking about the destructive legacy of slavery and racism in America, you know, how the country's institutions systematically unraveled efforts to build real equality after the civil war during reconstruction. We also talked about the history of voter suppression. We talked about police brutality and of course the long history of xenophobia in America. One of the things we want to do now moving forward in season two is bridge this conversation about racial inequality with another just as important subject, economic material injustice.
0: Yes, I'm sure everybody remembers that right after Trump's election, you know, there was a lot of argument about what had driven voters to embrace this guy. You know, was it his not very subtle racism or was it more somehow that, hey, he spoke to the little guy who had been left at the bottom of the economic ladder. And, you know, some people refused to rely on racism as the explanation for Trump. They said, no, no, he succeeded really because of this wage and opportunity gap and so forth. Well, it took us a little while, maybe longer than it should have, to arrive at the pretty obvious answer, that it was both.
1: Yeah. You know, people are always so invested in in using whatever's happening in front of them to, to reinforce what they already believe, and what they already want. And we saw so much of that in the early days of Trump as we all tried to figure out what just happened. You know, We have today someone who has really done the reading and the research and the reporting, someone who has thought deeply about the connections between race and class, between racism as a political reality in America, and the way it has warped our economic practices, policies, and institutions.
0: Yeah, we're joined today by Eduardo Porter. He's an economics writer for The New York Times and the author, most recently, of American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. Eduardo is also the host, with Tess Vigland, of his own podcast called The Pie. Eduardo, welcome to Democracy
2: in Danger. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: So, Eduardo, you open your recent book with a personal story, and I think our listeners would find it pretty moving. You write that you'd spent many years living in Mexico as a young person. You speak Spanish in your household with your family, with your children. But just after Trump was elected president, your son expressed some anxieties to you about what he was seeing and hearing in the news. Just tell us a little bit of that story.
2: Yeah. I mean, just to take a step back, I am Mexican-American. My mother is Mexican. I grew up most of my childhood in Mexico, all the way through university. And sort of like my Mexican identity is as important to me as my American identity. And I kind of hope to pass that same sends to my son, and you know, so we speak Spanish, here he's gone to Mexico a number of times and so forth. And then of course our our Mexican-ness became part of the political conversation when uh, Donald Trump joined the presidential race, you know, declaring that Mexico was sending a bunch of rapists and thugs to the United States. And what, what happened, the anecdote you're referring to, is the day after the election, we were on the subway and, you know, as usual, I was speaking to him in Spanish and he kind of leaned into me a little bit and said, you know, dad, maybe we shouldn't speak in Spanish in public anymore. So it's this notion that our Mexicanness was now dangerous, Right, was one of the immediate kind of like uh, consequences of the 2016 election.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to think how many people were having some version of that conversation at that moment. Yeah. A sense of really personal vulnerability. Like your family life was suddenly, you know, cast into shadow by the political events of the day. And of course, that
1: was not an empty threat. It came
0: true for so many
1: Americans and so many people who were trying to be Americans. Uh, you know, Eduardo, you write in your book. Racial hostility has blocked the construction of an American social welfare state. Right, I think this is the bridge between this sort of anxiety that so many people felt, the vulnerability that so many people felt, uh, and the fact that we have so little to fall back on. And you know, one of the most prominent debates that commentators had, as we said in the introduction, right after Trump's ascendancy in two thousand sixteen was about the role of economic inequality and wage stagnation, the hollowing out of the working class, all of which is true and documented. And yet the perception was that this was a white problem, right? How, how would you weigh the relative impact of the economic state of this early century and the, the long standing racism that is embedded in American institutions in helping us understand how Trump happened? If we just look
2: at the election itself, Trump wasn't brought to power by marginalized Americans, by like the poor who were really kind of like left out of American prosperity. In fact, like if if you look more carefully at Trump's vote, I mean, it was, there were a lot of people that were, you know, Squarely middle class that voted for Trump, and so when I try to think through how these, how racism interacted with economic anxiety in in, in that election, I think that the, the 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 better frame is to think about fear of loss of status, and there, you know, the idea that you know my good job might be gone or that it's more difficult to have, and the idea of loss of status of my racial group as this country goes through Enormous demographic change, which is going to leave, you know, non-Hispanic whites in the minority a couple of decades from now. Those two things I think really could create a very powerful feeling of, you know, fear and, and produce an enormous animus that is very, very racialized. So, I mean, if you ask me to you put put it in order, I would argue that race is first and foremost. But I would say that economic anxiety helps to trigger these kinds kind of like feelings of of racial hostility.
1: So so while the wages of so many white people might've been stagnant for the past few decades, the wages of whiteness certainly seemed to be worth
2: less yeah. You know, or on their way to be worthless. I mean, this sense that that, we, that we've heard so much, we heard it in January when the, the crowd stormed the Capitol, these white crowds storming the Capitol, the sense that they're losing their country. Right. So the, 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 the privilege, the power that came from whiteness is under threat. And uh, I think that is a very powerful motivator but they, they but obviously these things interact and you know and vast economic inequality creates enormous social distance and it also creates groups of power that are extremely powerful and are absolutely unwilling to change the, the social institutions uh, that that govern us so uh, dealing with economic inequality is i think very much a part of the challenge i would argue that what we need is to create a new idea of what being American is, what a mainstream American is, you know? It's a way more diverse, complicated, messy identity than the one espoused by people that went to Washington in January to take the Capitol. So the policies that help build that identity, I think a lot of them are about creating economic opportunity and sharing economic opportunity better. Um, you know, this idea that black families on average, have like one tenth of the wealth of white families. So evidently, we need to make more progress on issues of economic equality as part of this. But I argue that it's within a broad kind of like notion of, well, what is this new economic and social space that we have to create where we all fit?
0: You know, Eduardo, one of the things that I, I learned about in your book is, is the problem of working class solidarity. I mean, let's be honest, it seems from all the scholarship and the analysis that many people have done, including yourself, uh, race Trump's class again and again. And here is this country with a great deal of diversity at the bottom of the economic ladder. And yet there is relatively little cross-racial solidarity amongst people who are struggling. You know, why, why is this the case? Why do Americans who are trying to better themselves still feel so hostile towards their, their neighbor who might look different from them? And they also still often feel hostile towards the government, which could be a, a resource in their
2: climb up the economic ladder. That's a very difficult but fundamental question. And to be totally honest, my first answer is I don't really know but racial barriers are extremely powerful, not just in the United States, but around the world. And they're not just extremely powerful now, they're as old as the hills. And so this idea of you forming barriers around your ethnic group, uh, or or your racial group, or your religious group, or your linguistic group, or your cultural group, these kinds of strategies have been with us for, you know, thousands of years. In the United States, they are particularly powerful, I think, because the United States is rather unique in that it is very diverse. You know, you look around and you think, wow, in this country, most people are not like me. And no matter who you are in the United States, that's probably true. Most people in the United States are not like you. Uh, and, And that's quite rare. And I think that that is to some extent why Um, Race has become such a powerful force in shaping our institutions. So say, I mean, I would just compare it to like, I don't know, Sweden. Uh, When Sweden is building a welfare state, it's a bunch of, you know, tall, blonde, blue-eyed people building a welfare state for other tall, blonde, blue-eyed people. And so the barriers to solidarity created by, you know, ethnic differences and racial differences are not there, which kind of like, helps building this notion of a collective good. In the United States, building public goods is often stymied by the idea that I'm paying something for them, for some other.
1: Right. Of course, Sweden doesn't have the American legacy of slavery and and reconstruction.
2: Indeed. There are specificities. Yes.
1: Yes. Now, your reporting has taken you to some pretty exclusive places. By exclusive, I mean places where people do manage to be around people like them, whether it's it's because of, you know, they're rural and they don't necessarily have people of color in their immediate surroundings or at least in large numbers, uh, or they're, you know, self-reinforced by Facebook groups or whatever it takes, right? And, and you've noticed, though, that the hostility toward others seems to be higher where there is less actual interaction with the other. Is that correct?
2: Yes. I mean, it, that that is a w- w- kind of like one of the peculiar features of racial animus that it flares up where there are no others, <laughs> right? And uh, you could see this in the 2016 election, where a lot of the vote for President Trump turned out to be not in areas where there were lots of immigrants. So, it, it, kind of like this fear of immigration, this hostility towards immigrants seemed to flourish uh, um, more readily in places where there were where there weren't that many of them. And you're you're referring to some trips that I, I've done. I went to Kentucky. I've into the far west of Virginia and places where there are very, very few uh, immigrants or people of color in general and where you can sense this fear that we cannot build a a big safety net, we cannot build a social welfare state because it might be abused. And underlying this idea that it will be abused is the idea there's some other out there that will abuse it. And I, you know, I, I do wonder why this happens, you know, why in a place I was in Kentucky where I think it's you know 98% non-hispanic white right,
1: and right. there
2: were you know thoughts about how immigrants could you know abuse Medicaid. And I think it just reminds us of the power of political rhetoric, right? How a political entrepreneur can bring things into the conversation. And since I think the conversation about the social safety net in the United States has been so long prone to these characterizations, since, you know, Ronald Reagan talked about the welfare queen, this idea of, you know, the the social safety net being abused by people of color that in, in some big city. Uh, across the country has become a very, very powerful meme. So you don't even have to see it to believe it because it's just repeated and restated uh, in the political discourse.
0: But does that explain, uh, Eduardo, why people in Harlan County uh, are also anti-government, even if they benefit from government programs, or maybe have they turned their back on government programs altogether? I don't think so. But
2: well, I- well no. There's, I mean, Harlan County. The reason I went to Harlan County was it is one of the ten counties in the United States that rely most on fed on, on on federal money to to survive. You know, on food stamps. But I suspect uh, people don't talk about that all the time right? at the diner. No, no, exactly not. So there is a myopia. There's a there's a contradiction there um, about the importance of the of the government for their their individual lives, and there, and 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 the tension there is between that and the mistrust that they have, that they express about government in general, as something that is going to help others, is going to abuse them, is going to take from them. Uh, and, and yes, there, there is a, a, a there is a huge contradiction right there.
0: Let me just ask you a follow up in a kind of different way you know let me ask you the obama question you know so we we understand the the incredible legacy of racism in america the way it's warped our institutions from top to bottom and yet this extraordinary thing did happen in 2008 in which the united states elected a, a black man to the presidency and then reelected that person um in in 2012 in in the midst of significant economic uh, upheaval and change how does that map onto um this larger structural story you're talking about is obama kind of just like an epiphenomenon or uh is there are, are they connected
2: i mean i, I it is it it, it it runs a little bit against the general thesis of kind of like racial animus driving our political choices but i would argue that that race is an important driver of our political choice but c- clearly it is not the only one and as you pointed out 2008 notably the election in 2008 happened in the middle of an e- economic cataclysm that I think was very important to deliver the presidency to to Obama I don't know if you guys remember back then but McCain was absolutely uh, out to lunch on the f- financial crisis and there was a kind of like this feeling of competence coming from the Obama team about how to deal with this emergency and so I can imagine that 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 was important too. And and also the turnout amongst voters of color was very high for Obama. So to some extent, some of the states that flipped to Obama flipped on some kind of like marginal votes, but from voters of color. Um, And so so that was also very important. But but yes, I think clearly there is a broader point that, that might even in fact allow some hope in that, you know racial hostility, racial animus is not necessarily unconquerable. There is the possibility of us overcoming this powerful force. Yeah,
1: sure. But at the same time, when you look at the results of 2012, you compare them to the results of 2016, it's pretty clear that some voters, right, some some not small number of voters, uh, especially in states that were supposed to go for Clinton and had gone for Obama in 2012, must have voted for Obama, and then four years later, voted for Trump. Uh, you know, that's somewhat confusing and weird. Like, how, how how do you make sense of that?
2: It is confusing and weird. So, I mean, I, I guess I would say that it's kind of like choose your enemy. So in, if you think about when Obama is reelected in 2012, Obama is kind of like the populist choice verse in some of these Rust Belt states that he won, he is a populist choice against uh, a clear member of the financial elite who is uh, Mitt Romney. And so if you're just thinking of this in terms of, again, referring back to the economic anxiety that we were talking about a few minutes ago, where it's not that unnatural a path from Obama to Trump on kind of like economic anxiety grounds, anxiety about outsourcing, about, you know, imports from China and stuff like that, you know, and especially in some of these very important states, which ultimately delivered the presidency to Trump, you know, in the Midwest.
1: Well, so, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the, the role of economic inequality and economic anxiety in American electoral politics, but this podcast is really about the health of democracy, and that's a different question, right? It's not really about which party wins or which party loses, Although it's not too hard to use the victory of Donald Trump and the rule of Donald Trump as some sort of proxy for um, a rejection of democracy or a rebellion against democracy, right? I mean that the, the those those narr- narratives are all too clear, especially here in 2021. But I'm really interested in your thoughts on the ways in which the full flowering of democracy in America, the full recognition that we are equal partners, equal players, that we have a shared fate is undermined by economic inequality that seems to me to be designed, engineered. Just in the sense that there there have been specific policies since even the New Deal that deliver resources to some Americans and deny them to others. And that segregation of opportunity and that segregation of wealth now What do you think the effect is on the ideology of democracy, like the American belief in democracy? Do we suspend our disbelief and just proceed as if we are democratic? Is there a relationship between this policy-driven inequality and our inability to fully realize democracy?
2: Yeah, the short answer is yes, but maybe I should just before saying anything else I should say I don't really think the United States has ever been a democracy at least not in the way that it it's not it's not a democracy as advertised in any event there has always been enormous barriers for groups to not be able to exercise their full democratic rights and those barriers exist to this day the political system has done everything it can to disenfranchise voters and that is a stable fact of our political arrangements you know and then yes, of course, inequality is engineered in the sense that the political system will pass legislation and rules and so on that further the unequal distribution of the fruits of our growth for absolutely sure from, you know, tax laws to laws regarding welfare. We have at least for the last half century had a policy set that has been very, very careful to preserve the wealth of the wealthy and how this interacts with our undemocratic system is, well, you know, I think because the system is undemocratic, it has been in the control of basically economically powerful white subset of Americans, this group has kind of shaped policy to further their own interests and at the same time also to make it more and more difficult for other groups to have a crack at political power. And I think, you know, what we've seen in these last two elections has pretty much shown a light on how concerned, you know, kind of like the the, the white Power base of this country is about the prospect that there is a non-white power base that is growing, and that might actually wrest power from them for the first time in the history of this country.
0: And and, and America is not a democracy has become kind of a the theme of our of our podcast. I mean, we it's not for you know for all the reasons that you said it's um, it's not as advertised. But listen, Eduardo, I mean, I know we're running out of time. I want to ask you a, a smaller. Question: A kind of a technical one that in, that interests me, and I think might interest uh, you know our listeners. And, and that's really just about the minimum wage. It's it's a it's a topic that's hot in in that moment. The Biden administration is pushing through a plan for raising the minimum wage. Maybe it hasn't changed for uh, a decade and a half. Do you think that's a big deal, or is this kind of stuff on the margins that can't possibly address the much larger historical issues that
2: you've written about? It's both. I mean, it is a big deal, a a minimum wage of $15. I mean, if that's where we end up, if that's where the Biden administration is aiming, would be a huge deal for a lot of workers. Because, you know, maybe not as much in New York, but if you go to like West Virginia, there's a lot of people that are earning less than that. And so it would be very important. It would mean that, you know, people can approach a, 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 a fairly decent standard of living with a full-time job. But is this, you know, is this sufficient? Of, of course not. You know, I mean, the, the United States safety net and broad array of institutions to protect the most vulnerable and is, is so threadbare that you really need to do a lot of things to patch it up, I mean, you know, from health insurance to labor standard and minimum wages to improving unemployment insurance to child care to full political rights, urban policies about, you know, housing battling the expansion of economic segregation through gentrification processes that is also uh, moving people of color outside of you know, the more affluent, the more desirable neighborhoods and resegregating our cities. So I do think that we need policies that look at that, that push against that. I think we need policies that push against the resegregation of public education in the K-12 system. And I think that we need policies that also transform universities from these machines of inequality that they are right now, but it's kind of like in every domain I'm thinking every domain. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't put economics first is what I guess I'm saying, but I would, it, it is part of the policy package.
0: But I mean, just to finish that thought, policy is the key to getting any of these problems unwound, even to make a start on them. And that in it itself cuts against the very notion of the American identity that you were just talking about, which embraces the idea that at the end of the day, the free market can solve anything. And I mean, that is a fundamental belief that cuts across class and race and politics. People believe this notion that opportunity will resolve everything. And I mean, you know, that would be nice if it was true, but we have a couple hundred years to show that doesn't really resolve everything. We do actually need legislation. We need creativity and some government role. And I think that's a huge stumbling block for the kind of people that you're interviewing in Kentucky and Nebraska.
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, free markets, it's one of those concepts that do not really exist in the real world. <laughs> right, it turns out there's no such thing. <laughs> there's no such thing. First, for the point that you mentioned is that they live embedded in a set of institutions that we actually have to build the design and, and maintain and enforce. But also, I mean, just an experience of the United States, it's a little bit like this notion of America being a democracy. Uh, the American economy being driven by, by a free market is another kind of big fallacy. You know, we have all sorts of policies that try to stymie free markets it's in the service of corporate, of entrenched interests. You know, so like over the last thirty years, we have pretty much decimated antitrust policy, which has allowed for the emergence of very, very large firms that dominate their markets. And just now, we're starting to think, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have done that. You know, um, uh, but that's not like you know the operation of free markets in a way that is from policy actually uh, moving against the guarantee of of, of of more competitive market. That's right.
1: That's why. I, you know, in the sort of myth busting habit that we're in, in this conversation, uh, whenever someone says that a system is broken, I like to remind them
0: that more often than not, it's working as designed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Eduardo Porter, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in
2: Danger. Yeah, uh, Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. I, I hope it worked for you. Definitely.
1: That was Eduardo Porter, a New York Times journalist and the author of American Poison. He also co-hosts a podcast called The Pie.
0: Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.com to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back.
1: You know, Eduardo Porter uh, was in prime myth-busting mode in our conversation, and I think that the one thing we can take away from his book and all that he writes for The New York Times is that we have to be honest with ourselves about the relationship between inequality and democracy, and we have to be honest with ourselves about the fact that we have not created or maintained the systems that we purport to believe in.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I take away from his work is this notion that until we are willing to begin to embrace both our history, but also a new American identity with all of the faults and the flaws that we we know about, we're really not going to be able to address them in any kind of sustained policy way. But I, I like the idea that if we could begin to talk about America as a democracy that is unfinished, that has never been fulfilled or or as a marketplace that is filled with obstacles to achievement, obstacles to opportunity. Once we can begin with that as a kind of baseline, then it becomes much more appealing to talk about the ways to fix it. What are the policy solutions for uh, income inequality? What are the policy solutions for um, segregation in in public housing and in suburbanization. These things are are real. That's where individual lives can be changed. And I think rather than being afraid, I welcome his myth busting so that we can actually get onto the business of fixing democracy.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, myth busting is uh, what we all want to do and wish we could do better. And look, the United States just came through A series of really deep shocks, starting in 2001, when our vulnerabilities to the global systems we've built were made all too clear, continuing through the economic collapse of the George W. Bush years. Watching what happened in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina and seeing just how incompetent this elaborate American power had become. And then trying our best to rebuild for a few years, only to see our deepest, most ancient flaws and sins flex themselves to the point where they carried Donald Trump into power. And then without any shame to watch Donald Trump and his most devoted followers just directly assault American democracy to the point where they openly advocated for an ethnostate. And, you know, we should be angry and we should be motivated. And we really have to take the lessons of the work of people like Eduardo Porter and say, look, this is an economic reform program and a social reform program and a philosophical reform program. But man, we just all need to wake up and face the gravity of the situation.
0: I'll just add that one of the other myths that he took on was the melting pot myth. That is another thing that we're all taught in school, that America is a melting pot. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, you come here and you lose all of that identity, or at least you can subsume it if you choose to, in this glorious multicolored tapestry. Once again, he shows that a melting pot basically has worked for white people, it has not worked very well for people of color, and that the social safety net, you know—when when white legislators invented the social safety net, then they became reluctant to share it with people of color at the bottom of the economic ladder. So the melting pot has kind of frozen and it has stopped melting. So figuring out the intersection between our past, our history, and our need for wise communal solutions to these everyday problems, that's where the conjuncture really is. That's where our political life is converging. And I'm optimistic, but I have no doubt about the scale of the problem.
1: That's all we have this week on Democracy in Danger. Next time, we will talk to our colleague, Jim Ryan.
0: Not just students have been involved in activism, faculty have been involved in it as well.
1: He's the president of the University of Virginia, and he will be here to talk about the role of education in fostering a healthy democracy.
0: Living wage, for example, or admission of DACA students and undocumented students has that helped? Yeah, absolutely, insofar as it brings attention to the issue. In the meantime, don't be a stranger. Shoot us a tweet at D&D Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Let us know what you think about racial justice and economic inequality in America.
1: And take a moment to visit our homepage, dindanger.org.
0: And make sure to subscribe
1: to our show on your favorite audio app. Do your part to save democracy. Leave us
0: a review and a few stars. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell and Jane Frankel.
1: Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective, the podcast network of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan.
0: And I'm Will Hitchcock. Please join us again next time.